0: we are going to dive right in this morning and get right to work so i want you to think about what is a fool what is a fool we're not going to do a dialogue about this um, because we've got a lot to cover i'm excited about that hope you are too but think about what is a fool kids i know you're in here today and you've got your, your worksheet in front of you i think the word fool is on there so maybe You can think too, what is a fool? When you hear that word, what comes to mind, uh, this could be a little painful, but maybe who comes to mind? Maybe it's someone you have a relationship with. Maybe it's someone you don't have a relationship with, but you've heard about them, or you've seen them on on TV, Uh, but who or what comes to mind when you think about a fool? We are continuing our series in the book of Psalms today with Psalm chapter 14. If you have a Bible, turn there. We're going to read Psalm chapter 14 together. This is a Psalm of David. And David once met a man whose name was Fool. Yeah, that guy's parents must not have liked him very much. They named him Fool. In Hebrew, his name is Nabal. You can read about him in 1 Samuel 25 and the interaction that David had with him. It's a great story. That's part of how we found and decided on the name for our daughter, Abigail. She was married to Mr. Fool for a bit. But this psalm starts out this way. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There's none who does good. And the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion! When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. So in this psalm, short psalm, seven verses, we're going to talk about three questions. First of all, what is a fool? Second of all, who are the fools? And then finally, what will happen to fools? The first verse one, what is a fool? There's a footnote in the NIV Bible for the word fool, and it says the Hebrew words rendered fool in Psalms denote one who is morally deficient. So when we think about a fool from a biblical standpoint, we're not talking about anything that has something to do with a person's intellectual capacity. We're not talking about anything that has anything to do with their physical capacity. We're talking about moral and spiritual capacity and health or unhealth. Back in Psalm 1, we contrasted the wicked with the righteous. And now David again is contrasting the fool with, as you'll see soon, the wise. So the fool is synonymous with the wicked. And the fool, Scripture says, the fool says, in his heart. So whatever it means to be a fool, it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. Jesus said that our lives are kind of like a tree, a fruit tree. And the roots of the tree are like faith that are, that's found in our heart. Romans says, it's with the heart that man believes. And so the fruit That's hanging on the tree of our lives is an indicator of what's going on way down in the root structure of our hearts. And so, this is a heart issue. Foolishness is a heart issue. And if you're like me, when you read verse one, this fool says in his heart, There is no God, you might immediately think of a philosophical atheist. Maybe a person like the late Stephen Hawking, who just recently passed away, or or Richard Dawkins. People who who openly assert and even passionately defend the notion that there is no God. God does not exist. Maybe that's what first comes to your mind. These, these philosophical atheists, and I just want to say these people are very intelligent. They're very intelligent. And it's almost as though they they believe that all of the profound mysteries of life in the universe can be answered by scientific evidence and empirical data. Some go so far as to say that. It's as if they say, We're so smart, we don't need God. And honestly, I just want to say, Here's what the Bible says about those people they're very smart, but they're foolish. They're fools. But though that's true, and though the Bible speaks to that reality of philosophical atheism, that's not what Psalm 14 has in mind. Because in this day, in this time, in this world, there would not have been people who walked around and said, God does not exist at all. That person wouldn't have been around. So instead, Psalm 14 is not talking about philosophical atheism. Psalm 14 is talking about Functional atheism. Functional atheism. This is like living as if there is no God. This is living as if God is not important, God doesn't see, God won't hold us accountable. We hear about this mindset in Psalm chapter 10. You can look back if you've got a Bible. Psalm 10 Verses three through four, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. And then verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face. He will never see it. And then verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account. So here's what's interesting about functional atheism, the person who lives their life as if there is no God. Guess what? A religious person can be a functional atheist. A religious person can be a functional atheist. So Psalm 14 is not just talking to Stephen Hawking. Psalm 14 is talking to religious people. Who go through the motions and check the boxes to maybe try to keep God happy or manipulate God, but they keep him over there in the corner and they go through the motions for an hour a week, but then in the rest of life, their life screams, There is no God. God is not important. In Matthew 15, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and he quotes Isaiah in saying, These people honor me with their lips. I believe in God, but their hearts are far from me. And this person, the functional atheist, is also a fool in God's eyes. Now, first of all, let's let's acknowledge that functional atheism is the default position of the culture in which we live. Functional atheism is the default position of the culture in which we live. Mentioning anything supernatural is very unusual, if you think about it, in most films, most music, in journalism, in public education, in politics, in business, in advertising. Honestly, I feel like this this functional atheism, this kind of anti-supernatural worldview, is the main obstacle in having spiritual conversations with people. Because if you can get, if you can enter into a supernatural worldview and just sort of agree, like, hey, there's something bigger going on here, it's pretty easy to have a spiritual conversation but going from the normal rigmarole of everyday life and conversation and interaction, where God's not a part of it at all in anyone's conversation or mindset, and you being the oddball and you sort of opening the door and saying, hey, there's a God, I believe in him, I pray, I'm, I love Jesus, like that initial step from the anti-supernatural into the supernatural, that's the biggest obstacle for me. And we'll talk about this next week, It's because to do that makes you sound like a fool. And we don't want to look like a fool. But the Bible says that people over on this side are really the fools. And we're trying to open the door to true wisdom. Now secondly, in light of this reality of functional atheism, I want to challenge us to consider how central in your thinking is the reality that God cares about my relationships. God cares about my work. God cares about my home. God cares about my resources, my time, my money. God cares about my parents. God cares about the people I work with. If you're married, God cares about your spouse. If you have children, God cares about your children and the way in which you engage those relationships. How present is that in your thinking? How predominant is God in your life? Are there parts of your life where you honor God with your lips, but then other parts of your life where your heart is far from him? That's a hard question. That's a convicting question. But realize this, friends. Your life preaches. You live a sermon every single day. And in every single decision that you and I make, you're saying something about what you believe at the core of your being. That's why the fool says, in his heart, there is no God. All the decisions you make are a big Loud message about what you believe. So that's a fool, a person who does not have God central. Now, who are the fools? Verses two and three. The text says that Yahweh, the Lord, the one true God. This is His personal covenant name. He looks down from heaven on the children of man. That phrase, children of man is also found back in Psalm chapter eight, which Randy preached last week. And we got this glorious picture of humanity that God shows the world what he's like through weak but glorious humans. And that humans are the main way that God puts on display his character and nature in the world. That's a great bookend to understand humanity. Today, we get the other end of the spectrum. Humans are glorious, made in God's image. They are the children of man. And so this passage affirms that too, but it says now he's getting the the microscope out and he's going, okay, let's look at this creation of mine and let's see, let's look. Let's see if we can find someone who understands, the text says. There's a footnote there. If you look at it, it says, someone that acts wisely. I'm not sure why the translators translated understand. This word, this Hebrew word is found in Genesis 3, 6. It says that Eve saw that the tree of knowledge of good and evil was desirable to make one wise. Very same Hebrew word there. Proverbs 1, 3, the very beginning of the book of Proverbs, which is all about wisdom, says, hey, King Solomon, I'm saying this stuff to my son, David, and here's some of the reasons why I'm unpacking this stuff. It's so that you can receive instruction in wise behavior. I think David is trying to contrast foolishness with wisdom. Super interesting side note, by the way, about that Nabal and Abigail story. Nabal's name means fool. Abigail, same Hebrew word for wisdom, applied to her. So their relationship is like this psalm. Spelled out. Oh God, make my daughter Abigail wise. Make her wise, Jesus. So after finding out that the fool lives as if there is no God, we find out that God is looking for someone who is wise. Proverbs nine ten tells us the key to wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. What does the fear of the Lord mean? Don taught us several months ago that the fear of the Lord is to take God with ultimate seriousness, to take God with ultimate seriousness. And we could add to that in every area of life, in every area of life. The fear of the Lord is the polar opposite of functional atheism. Functional atheism says, I'm going to do what I want with most of my life. I'll pay lip service to God. I'll go to church and give some money, but I'm going to run my life. That's functional atheism. The fear of the Lord says, oh God, I'm going to take you with ultimate seriousness in every area of my life by your grace to the best of my ability and convict me whenever that's not the case. The fear of the Lord says, Yahweh is king, sovereign, God, the one in charge of my work, my friendships, my school, my parents, my family, my use of time, my use of money. The fear of the Lord says, God, I submit to you because you matter. I trust you. I love you. My life is yours. And what does Psalm 14 say? The Lord is looking to see if there's anyone who fears him, and how many does he find? None. Zero. That's why in Romans chapter 3, Paul quotes these exact verses from the book of Psalms to prove his point that everybody, Jews and Greeks, are all under sin. Because Yahweh is looking for one person who will live with him at the very center of their existence, who will live wisely, who will do good. And he comes up empty. That's why Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is what theologians call the doctrine of total depravity. The doctrine of total depravity. Mission kids, this is for you. I left this in here for you. And there's some adults here who probably wanna learn about the doctrine of total depravity too. But I thought, you know what? This is some good theological stuff. Doctrine of total depravity. I'm going to explain what it means and then I'm going to give you a lesson and I'm going to need a child volunteer, particularly, well, I won't even give that qualification. I'm I'm going to get a child volunteer here in a second. But first of all, the doctrine of total depravity, saying that God's looking for anybody who fears him, he hasn't found anybody. Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that humans like are totally as evil and wicked as they possibly could be that's not what the word total means when we talk about total depravity theologian Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology book says this scripture is not denying that unbelievers can do good in a society in some senses But it is denying that they can do any spiritual good or be good in terms of a relationship with God. Remember scripture says your righteousness, is like filthy rags to God. You're not gonna merit something before God with your good works. So what does total depravity mean? Again, from Grudem, every part of our being is affected by sin our intellects, our emotions and desires, our hearts, our goals and motives, and even our physical bodies. So total depravity doesn't mean we're totally, completely, only, always sinful, but it does mean that sin affects us totally. So here's a little picture of total depravity. No illustration's perfect, right? This is just my attempt at illustrating a complex theological doctrine. So uh, I, need, I need a volunteer right there, sweetheart. Come on up, Addie. Okay, so I hold in my hands here a glass of clean water. Okay, she's fine right there. Yep, that's fine. So normal Tacoma tap, the good stuff. It really is the good stuff. Okay, and this right here is an essential oil called Melaleuca, also known as tea tree oil. Okay, so sweetheart, I want you to smell this for me. You don't have to taste it. What do you think about that smell? Eh, so-so. It's not amazing, is it? No, it doesn't, I don't think it smells very good. I, I, don't, I think it smells kind of gross. So I'm with you, like, not too good. You wanna take one more smell? Yeah, okay. Not too good, huh? No, okay. Would you wanna drink this? No, I didn't think so. Okay, Addy, thank you so much for helping me out. I appreciate it. You can have a seat. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to down this little bottle either. Um, but I'm going to put a few drops in here, four or five. This stuff, that's maybe a little more sin than I bargained for there. Um, so, so I put a few drops in this water. And melaleuca, tea tree oil, is uh, supposed to what? Disinfect, kill germs, right, Jen? I watch the expert on these essential oils. Isn't that what it does? Kills germs? Okay, so um, the, like putting this in your body should be good for you, right? But here, here's the idea. This, you know, four ounces of liquid did not become total tea tree oil. The whole thing does not now consist of tea tree oil. However, you could not, and if, you know, if I had a little stir stick, I'd stir it up, but you couldn't like extract one particle of this water that would not contain some tea tree oil. It's like, it's kind of poisoned by the tea tree oil. The whole thing's not poison, but it's poisonous. It is contaminated, it is tainted. Okay, but I'm going to drink it anyway. Oh, the links we'll go to to illustrate the doctrines of God. The doctrine of total depravity means that we are unable to choose what is right all of the time. Humans are unable to choose what's right all the time. We have a natural propensity towards doing the wrong thing. I've never met anybody who didn't at some point in their life Knowingly violate their conscience. Like walk towards a choice and know, I know what the right choice is and I know what the wrong choice is. I'm gonna make the wrong choice. I've never met anybody who hasn't done that. Humans are incapable of not doing that because of total depravity. The text says, we've all turned aside, we have become corrupt which just to balance this out is another sort of nod to the fact that we weren't created this way. So even though we're totally depraved, I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that we were created by God as very good. But see, we became corrupt. That phrase almost invites you to think back to like, well, what did it used to be like? And you only have to page back to Psalm 8 to find the answer to that question. And so God's on the look Everyone's turned aside. No one does good. Not even one. There is no human who, when they stand before God, and everybody will, everybody will, everyone will stand before God and have to give an answer for the works you've done in the body, good and evil. The New Testament says that at least two, if not three times, to Christians. We're not off the hook for Judgment Day, friends. We're not off the hook. And there's not one person who's going to be able to stand before a holy God and say, Okay, okay, listen, listen. I know, I know I knowingly violated my conscience. But man, did you see this, 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 and that? It, It doesn't add up. Billy Graham is going to stand before God on Judgment Day. It it hasn't come for him yet. It's at the resurrection. He's with Jesus right now in spirit, I believe, not with a physical body, hanging out with Jesus, having a great time. His Judgment Day's coming, and then he'll get his new body. It's going to be crazy. But when Billy Graham stands before Jesus, he's not going to say, I preached to 250 million, right? Like I lived to be 99 and kept my, my moral record clean despite tons of temptation. No, Billy Graham's gonna stand before God and say, the righteousness of Jesus Christ is my only hope. I have no other argument. I have no other plea. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's all I've got. Mother Teresa is now called a saint, but guess what? When she was alive, she was a saint because of Jesus Christ. You're all saints. The Dalai Lama is gonna have to plead the blood of Jesus Christ over his life in order for him to stand before a holy God. Nobody can stand before God. You can't balance out your sin with your performance. You can't atone for your sin. You can't blame somebody else. Ah, I was just following the example set for me. You can't hide and say, well, no one was really affected or God didn't see my sin. You can't minimize your sin and say, oh, well, no one's perfect. No, Paul looks at us in Ephesians 2 in our, in our pre-saved state and he says, you know what, guys? You're dead you're dead. You got nothing. This is why we believe that God's saving work is a work of God's grace. Because what can a dead person do to save themselves? Nothing. What can a dead person do to like trim their fingernails, let alone save themselves? They can't do anything. Nothing. Total depravity means that unless God shows up in his grace. There's not one who's going to seek him or respond to him. So individually, we all need to be saved from our foolishness. It's so easy to read Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And as a Christian to think, oh yeah, oh yeah, those people. It's so easy. But man, verses two and three level the playing field. Who are the fools? It's all of us. We need a savior. And finally, verses four through seven, what will happen to fools? Some people think this is a lament psalm. There's a lot of difference of opinion. I think it's a wisdom psalm. But the thing that pulls people a little bit towards the idea that it might be a lament psalm is verses four through seven because here we are, we are faced with the reality that we do live in a world and in particular as God's people, we live in a world where we are very affected by the foolishness of mankind. We live in a world where God's people are eaten up like bread We live in a world where the plans of the poor are shamed. But these verses also affirm that even though that's true, and even though there's oppression and wickedness and injustice that affects God's people and affects the marginalized, where is God even in the middle of all that? And here comes his grace. He's with the righteous. He's willing to call a group of people, my people. In light of verses two and three, that is insane. Like, where does that come from? Because verses two and three just said, hey, God's on the lookout for anybody who's righteous. There's nobody. But then over here, we're introduced to this group of people that's called the righteous. Where did they come from? Who are they? How did they get to be God's people if they didn't fear the Lord? God is with his people. I'm going to answer that question in a minute, by the way. But we live in a depraved world. We are all impacted by sin, by injustice, by oppression, by hatred. And yet God is with his people and will someday hold all wicked and foolish people accountable. Back to Psalm 1. That's part of the hope of the righteous. Judgment's coming for the wicked. Judgment's coming for the wicked. That's part of the hope. See, our hope is not in our government's ability to preserve religious freedom. So much talk today about religious freedom. Should we fight for it and make a case for it? Of course we should. Of course we should. But don't put all your hope in that. Don't assume that the loss of it is even necessarily a bad thing. Whoa, what am I talking about? I'm talking about North Korea. I'm talking about China. I'm talking about Iran. I'm talking about Iraq. Places where the church is going crazy and they have no freedom. No freedom. Our hope is not in our government's ability to preserve religious freedom. Our hope is in the fact that no matter how the wicked and foolish oppress the people of God, he's with us. And he is our refuge and our strength. And it's so important to remember that all of us are totally depraved because when the oppression and the violence and the ill treatment and the injustice comes, we can't just pray, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. God, judge the wicked someday. Though it is biblical and okay to pray that, but you've also got to pray, God, have mercy on people. Second Peter says, God's patient. He's willing that no one should perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. Well, if God wants that, so should you. So go, man, God, you see how these, my brothers and sisters in North Korea are getting oppressed. It would be amazing if you would wipe out the whole regime. God, bring judgment on those people. But man, it'd be even better if you'd save them. But one way or the other, God, just be with your people. Protect your people. And I think we tend towards one or the other, don't we? I know I do. It's easy for me to just withdraw and like, I just want to go crawl into a hole, and just like, grab my family and the people I love and just go, man, let's just hold hands and love Jesus and sing Kumbaya and the world can just go to hell, right? Go to hell in a handbasket. I don't even care. That's where I'm, I'm tempted to go. Or we can go on the other side of like, man, I'm going to be Mr. Prophet and vigilant. And I'm going to like get out there and poke every hole and just say, shoot off my mouth all day, every day and tell everyone they're wrong. Man, there's, there's, there's a balance here. Like God, you're sovereign, you're in control. You're going to bring judgment. You're with me. I want you to save people. I want to be involved in your mission. I do want to say stuff when I'm supposed to say stuff, but I also want to, I just want to find my comfort, my peace and my refuge in you. Right. See, there's a balance there. Corey Ten Boom was a Dutch Christian who helped her family hide Jewish people from the Nazis during World War II. After being arrested and spending time in a Dutch prison, she ended up in a German concentration camp, and there she witnessed firsthand the horrific, oppressive effects of human depravity on God's people. Her own father and sister died in the concentration camp. But rather than hunkering down and praying every day for God to pour out his just punishment, she started secret Bible studies in the concentration camp. And she told as many people as she could about Jesus. And many people, came to faith in the concentration camp. Later, she was even able to see some of the German guards come to faith in Jesus. She talked with some of the guards who were responsible for the death of her family members and was able to communicate the forgiveness of Jesus Christ to them. I mean, this is a person who understands that God is their refuge in the midst of total human depravity. Friends, I know that we live in a world gone mad. I've been so tempted lately to just think, Jesus, come on, just, just push the eject button already. Like, just, just say game over. I mean, mercy, right? But I've also been challenged by other Christians who are saying, things like this that sound so crazy, I have to work to get my mind around it, but I'm grabbing onto it anyway. I'm trying to make sense of it. There's no better time in history to have been alive and be a Christian than right now. It's such an exciting time to be a Christian. Such a great time to walk around with the presence of Jesus in you and the truth of the gospel ready to fall off of your lips. There's no better time than now to be a follower of Jesus and the reality is, is that as things get more and more crazy, and they will, we will have so many opportunities to talk with people who are scared and disillusioned and say to them, God is real and God is here and God cares and God knows and God saves. And to many, we will sound like fools, but there are some who will go from foolishness to wisdom when they hear the good news about Jesus. Because you see, Psalm 14 says that the Lord looked down from heaven to see if there was one who would act wisely. And there was not one. And I say, oh, But there is one, there is one. There is one who fears the Lord. There is one who acts wisely. There is one who does good. There is one who walks in God's ways. There is one who has God in the center of every facet and area of his life. There is one who never sinned There is one human who could stand in the judgment with their righteousness and have it hold up to the scrutiny of a holy God. And that one person's name is Jesus. There is one. There is one who seeks God. There is one who is righteous. There is one who does good. And Jesus didn't just look down from heaven. Jesus came down from heaven. He didn't look down at the children of man. He became one of the children of men. Jesus, you are the one that we're looking for. Jesus, you are the righteous one. You're the perfect one. You're the sinless one. We can't stand before God, but you can. And Jesus took our place in death he endured the worst that hell has to offer, separation from God, so that we would never have to. He took on the just punishment for our sin. And verse 7 says, oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. That's a messianic prayer saying, Man, let the king of Israel ride out of Zion on a horse and conquer all of his enemies. That's the prayer. But Jesus didn't ride out of Zion like a conquering king to destroy all of his enemies. He rode into Zion on this day, Palm Sunday. He rode into Zion like a humble king, not to conquer his enemies, but to die for them. Total depravity means that unless God shows up in his grace, no one is going to seek him or respond to him. And God has shown up in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if the son of man is lifted up, I will draw people to myself. So friends, I was so gripped this week with the reality of how much I need God's grace in my life it's amazing that I'm standing here today because I'm a fool according to the biblical standard. But guess what? God's grace showed up in my life and it showed up in your life. God's grace brings conviction of your sin to your heart. God in his grace and by His spirit shows you the truth about Jesus. God in his grace brings you to repentance. God in his grace gives you faith to look at Jesus on the cross and say, you died in my place so I could be forgiven. I don't have to carry guilt anymore. God in his grace allows us to see Jesus in his life and say, it's your life that makes me righteous. I don't have to have shame anymore and hide my sin. I'm righteous, I'm holy, I'm a saint. God in his grace gives us faith to look at Jesus' resurrection and say, in you I have new life, I've been made new, I'm not the same person I used to be. I have new desires with a new heart and new power to obey. You live inside of me. That's all God's grace. And so, friends, I want to end by challenging us to respond to the grace of God in three ways. Here's how you can respond to the grace of God. These are short. First of all, thank Him. Thank Him. We're gonna do that in a minute, actually. We're gonna end with prayer and I'm gonna let all of you have an opportunity to just shout out thanks to God for his grace in your life. I'm sure that there are some of you sitting in your chairs right now ready to come out of your chairs. And because we still don't know how to do like authentic excitement, uh, we're still just kind of stuck, right? So we're going to, I'm gonna give you a chance in a minute to just say, God, thank you. I would still be a fool lost in my sin if it wasn't for you breaking into my life. And second of all, obey him. Remember the message of Titus. Grace motivates you to obey. It's God's grace that motivates you to obey. You don't obey so God will love you. You obey because God loves you. I tell the kids at Lincoln here, there's only two reasons you ever do anything in life either because you're trying to get something or because you already believe you have something. That's what it boils down to. Like, am I after something? Am I trying to get, 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 get? Well, that's a motive to obey, right? Very pragmatic, very selfish. Or do you go, man, holy cow. Like, I can breathe today. I can see today. I'm alive. I'm at a school with great teachers and amazing principal. I don't deserve to be here. So many gifts. So many, like, I have been given so much. I want to make the most of it. I'm getting after this. It's either because you've already like got everything or because you're trying to get more. And that's the difference between like like legalism and just responding to God's grace with obedience in your life. But I'm urging you, family. God's been gracious to you. If you believe that, be passionate about your obedience. Don't be half-hearted. Be passionate about your obedience. And then finally, finally tell the world I mean, if we seriously believe that every human we ever see was made by God to be in relationship with him, but they're stuck in their foolish lack of fear of the Lord, and grace is going to break into their life and change them, why would we not tell them? Why would we not tell them? We've got this amazing news to communicate. And because we believe God is sovereign over the whole thing, guess what? There's an adventure to it because you never know when God's grace is going to show up in somebody's life you never know. See, it's not up to you. You don't have to be crafty in your presentation. You don't have to have every answer to every question. You don't have to read every Ravi Zacharias book in the world and get all your apologetics straightened out before you have a spiritual conversation. Though his books are great, I love them. Just share the gospel with people and see what God does. So I want to encourage you, go with confidence You've got friends, you've got neighbors, you've got coworkers, you've got family members, you've got people your missional community is trying to come around and love. Pray that God would give you opportunity to share the gospel in response to the grace of God. Okay, I'm gonna pray, and then we're gonna leave some space just for you to respond, just just thanking God for his grace, and then the band will come up and we'll sing a song or two and remember Jesus through communion. God, hear our prayers. Oh, Daddy, thank you for your love that you sent your son because you loved us and you saw that we were broken and lost and we needed a savior. Oh, Jesus, right now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, if there's anyone in this room who needs the blinders to be removed so that they see their sin and their foolishness and they're pushing God to the margins of life, and they need a savior and they need forgiveness for that, Jesus, make that reality true to them in this moment. But also show them the gift of Jesus, that he's sufficient to save them in their sin. So Father, hear our prayers as we express our thanks to you for your grace.